we go into the sermon, Holy Spirit, would you help us to hear your word your way? Would you help me to preach your word your way? Would you help us to understand the depths of your love, the depths of your sacrifice, the depths of your power and victory toward us, Lord God? Father God, would you help us, Lord God, to leave here different from the way we came in? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, everyone here knows that we should not murder. But everyone does it. Okay, now I can see some people fidgeting in their chairs. It's like, I haven't murdered. Maybe you're just confused by what I said. It's like, heck, I, I don't think that's true. Perhaps you're offended. It's like, I live better than that. I've never murdered anyone. What's she saying? And there might be one or two, I don't know, that you're feeling convicted. <laughs> Praise the Lord, you're here. Good thing. Jesus has a plan for your life. I'm going to invite you, if you are confused or you're offended, would you journey with me for a moment, please? Because my hope is we'll all end up in the convicted category. And then we all receive the giant victory that leads to freedom at the end. I'm not sure how those slides are going to do, but I'm going to preach whether they work or not. So we are doing the sixth commandment today. You shall not murder. In the Hebrew, it's one word. It's not, it's, I mean, you shall not murder is pretty succinct and clear, but in the Hebrew, it's even more succinct and clear. It liter literally means, it's the negative of murder, don't murder. There are no caveats, there are no exceptions. There's no, when you're feeling good, you shouldn't murder. When you're feeling bad, you can murder a little bit. <laughs> There's nothing like that. It, it has no secret meaning. I can't pull out the word and tell you the deeper meaning of it. There is no deeper meaning. It just means don't murder. Don't kill anyone. Don't kill the people you hate. Don't kill the people you like. Don't kill people because they're irritating you. Don't kill people because they've driven in front of you in the road. Don't kill the elderly. Don't kill the young. Don't kill your spouse. Don't kill unborn children. Don't kill anyone. There was only one provision in the Old Testament for murder, and that was if you did it by accident. And then, it wasn't like you got off the hook. It's almost like the Bible implies you should have been more careful. Because God values human life so much that even if you do it by accident, it's a very serious thing. And if you did it by accident, what you had to do, you had to run to a particular city called a city of refuge. And you had to hope you got there before the executioner. And if you got there, you could hang on to the horns of the altar. You could, or you could just run to a place of God's mercy. But you had to stay in that city of refuge for the rest of your life. So there was provision, but it was an intense provision. God is very, very clear. We should never kill anyone. 
And that would be the end of my sermon if that's all there was. Shortest sermon in the history of this church. However, Jesus did something spectacular. He quoted this commandment in the New Testament and he did make it a little more complicated. So this is what he said. You can read it in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. He says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, listen carefully, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that's like a swear word, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Can we all just take a deep breath? Remember what I said. Everyone knows you shouldn't murder, but we all do it. Because in this verse, Jesus ups the game big time. And he says, or shows us that in God's eyes, outbursts of anger, contempt for other people, and slander of others are the same as murder. Okay, I say it again. We all know we shouldn't murder, yet we all do it. Have you all moved from confused and offended to convicted. Is there anyone who's not feeling convicted? Because I can say it again. The bottom line is, we've all sinned in this area. Not only have we all sinned, but we all continue to sin. When I started preparing for the sermon, man, this truth hit like a 10-ton truck in my heart. It was like, heck. And I started examining every time I started thinking negative thoughts about someone else. It was much too often. And I thought, God, there's murder in my heart. Every time you're contemptuously looking at someone, every, every time that anger boils up in your heart, every time you're tempted to speak words of slander and hatred and dissidence against someone, Guys, that's the spirit of murder in your heart. It's the spirit of the enemy trying to bring something that will end up in death and destruction. What Jesus did here feels like to me, I'm in the gym, I'm on the treadmill. And heck, I'm giving it my all. I'm, I started on eight, but I'm heading up to nine. I'm on to ten. The, I've put, even put the incline up a couple of notches. You know, you know guys, I'm sweating. I'm, do, I'm giving it my everything. I've, I've, I'm hoping that people around me are watching because I'm doing it well. 
And then Jesus comes and stands next to my treadmill, and you know you've got that lever that punches you up a notch. And he just, just goes, bam, 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 bam. And suddenly this treadmill is going at like 15, and the incline's at 5, and I am doing everything I can to stay on, but I can't. I can't keep up. The treadmill shoots me back, and I find myself lying on the carpet behind just like, what happened? That's what this feels like to me. It's like just when I thought I was quite a good person, just when I thought I actually had it together, I hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you just have anger in your heart, you're in the same category. It's like, heck, now I'm in impossible territory. Now, this treadmill is going so darn fast, I can't keep up with it. I can't manage. So, we can just stop there and all feel bad. Go home. But we're not going to stop there. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus is always redemptive. And the clue we get to his solution is in the first line that he says. He says, you have heard it said. In fact, he says it, you have heard it said to the people long ago. So he was making direct reference to that time on Mount Sinai when the voice of God boomed out from the mountain. Remember, we spoke about this the first week. That the people, all of Israel around the mountain, literally heard the audible voice of God coming from the mountain, speaking to them, and they heard it said, from the mouth of God, do not murder. And then Jesus does a wild thing. A couple of lines later, he says, but I tell you. The people heard it directly from the mouth of God, and yet Jesus is standing there and saying, but I'm going to tell you something new, something more. What's he doing? He's standing in the place of God. And he's saying, I'm rewriting the story. I'm redoing this whole thing. You, you, know, you often wonder why the Jews of the time hated Jesus so much. But here you have a clue. Man, he was always pushing that treadmill speed up a notch. Just when they thought they had it. Here comes Jesus. And not only is he making it harder, but he's standing there. And he's saying that I have the right to change the words of God or add to the words of God. No one has that right but God himself. Here stands Jesus being God, saying God things. And in the process, upping the standard, upping the game to an impossible level. Is there any way you can get the next slide? It's got a table on it. If you could just get that slide, I'd be grateful because it's got some important information on it. The interesting thing about the book of Matthew, can I just give you some background to the actual written book of Matthew? Is Matthew was writing to Jewish people. And while he was writing to Jewish people, he was taking them on a journey. 
and the sequence of events that he tells them that Jesus did. You know, all of the Gospels recount many similar things, but they all do it in their own special way because they had an agenda. Matthew had an agenda, and his agenda was to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And he did this most remarkable thing. From the beginning of the book of Matthew right through to this point, he takes Jesus and he relates Jesus' uh, journey in a particular way. You must remember, Israel prided themselves. Their most important story was the exodus out of Egypt. For a Jewish person, that was their Genesis story, their origin story. You know where Batman came from? This was where Israel came from. So their story went like this. They were slaves in Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They, were, they went through the Red Sea, and in Corinthians, it talks about how they were baptized into Moses as they went through the, the Red Sea. In other words, it was a, a kind of baptism that they went through as they went through the Red Sea. Then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and on the way, they came to this mountain Sinai, and God gave them instructions for right living. Jesus is reported to, by Matthew as doing a few things. First of all, he came out of Egypt. Remember, he had to flee to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill all the babies. So Matthew's very clear that he came out of Egypt. Next, he was, remember he went to John and he said, baptize baptize me. And John the Baptist was like, heck, I don't, you need to baptize me. Why are you asking me to baptize you? Why? Because Jesus was doing more than just an act. He was actually re-walking the path of Israel. So when he was baptized, what he was saying is, I'm the new Israel. As, as, I came out, as they came out of Egypt and were baptized through the Red Sea, so I come out of Egypt and I'm baptized in water. Then, you remember, right after that, the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. Israel in the wilderness for 40 years was tempted over and over and failed every time. Jesus went into the wilderness was for 40 days and was tempted in every way and yet succeeded in overcoming every single temptation. And then, after he's done that, Matthew has him go right from that up a mountain with crowds around him where he begins to speak instructions for living. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And this is part of that. So you can see what Jesus was doing. I hope you can see what Jesus was doing. Or Matthew was showing them that Jesus has done. That Jesus was rewalking the journey of Israel. He was rewriting the story of Israel. He was saying what you could not do. What you failed in. How you failed in your relationship with God. How God came and gave you everything and yet you still stumbled time and time again. I am coming as the perfect Israel. And I am coming to walk the same journey. I will face the same temptations. I will face the, the same difficulties. And I will do it in the power of the Spirit with the help of my Father. And I will do it perfectly without sin.
You see, Jesus was rewriting Israel's story. But the beauty of this is that he wasn't just rewriting Israel's story. He was rewriting your story. So this is why he can up the game. He can up the game to perfection, which is basically what he did. He, he's upping the game to internal perfection that results in external righteousness. He can do that. Why? Because not only is he increasing the speed on your treadmill, he's picking you up, putting on your, you on his shoulders, and he's running the treadmill. So you see, he can make it go as fast as you want. He's the creator of everything. That treadmill will submit to him. You see, he's rewriting your story. And in so doing, his grace is perfecting you. I want to tell you a story about my high school career. It was very checkered, but I made it through. I got to the finish line, praise the Lord. There were moments when it was a bit dicey. But I went to an all-girls school. <laughs> we had a subject that I had to do until grade 10. Praise God, I didn't have to do it after grade 10. But it was called housecraft. Some people call it home economics. But in my school, it was called housecraft. And you know, the cooking stuff was quite nice. I enjoyed that. But part of it was that they tried to teach us to embroider. Guys, I mean, who in this 21st century, 20th century ever, ever embroiders? Guys, have you ever embroidered? Guys, I know you've never embroidered. Girls, have you ever embroidered? I mean, and every year, every year in grade 10, every housecraft girl had to embroider a square of cloth with a particular dog on it and make it into a cushion. I know. I mean, you have never seen dogs like that. I mean, they had legs coming out of their heads. They had, like, green noses. I mean, we didn't care. We were just like, get this darn thing done. I mean, there were dogs like you've never seen. And I, I mean, I, I, I like to get good marks. So even though I hated it, I wanted to get marks. And I tried quite decently. I, I think I just got over the pass mark, handed it in. But it was, it was something I didn't like, and it was not enjoyable from start to finish. I have two younger sisters. My younger sister gets to grade 10. This is a true story, guys, true story. She gets to grade 10, and of course she gets the dog assignment as well. She brings it home, and I'm laughing. Ah, you're going to have to do this terrible thing. And she just flatly refuses to do it. She just didn't do it. And it came to the day when she would have to hand it in the next day. And she hadn't done it. And she was a little worried at supper. She was like, mm, I don't, you know, I haven't done it. What am I going to do? I was like, well, you should have thought of that a long time ago. True story, guys. She woke up the next morning. At the end of her bed was the completed assignment. Perfect dog. 
perfect dog embroidered into, and made into a cushion. My mom stayed up all night <laughs> and crochet, I mean, embroidered that darn dog. And my mom's pretty good at this stuff. She did it perfectly. I think my sister's the only person in the history of that school that ever got 100% for that assignment. Do you know what I felt? I felt angry. I felt jealous. I mean, this, you shall not murder, was a good, you know, commandment for that moment. But I also felt this a little bit. Heck, I wish my mom had done that for me. Heck, I wish my mom had done that for me. But this is the perfect example of what Jesus did. It's like the assignment of your life, you are messing up. You've got green dog legs coming out of your head and your, your stitches are all wrong and there are holes in the wrong places and it's just, it, it looks more like some kind of a dinosaur than it does look like a dog. You know, that's, that's all of our lives. And Jesus came and stayed up all night and he diligently embroidered the most beautiful tapestry of who you are and how you live. And the day you say yes to Jesus is the day he presents you with a perfectly done assignment because he walked your life already. He walked your life already. And when we talk about the fact that Jesus redeems us, this is what we mean. We mean that he takes his perfect life and he gives it to you in exchange for your battered one. He runs that treadmill for you. That sounds amazing. And it actually means this somewhat horrifying thing that you never have to sin again. Sorry, I said horrifying, it's actually glorious. And I know it gets very silent right now when I say that because you're all thinking about your past week. And you're all remembering the outbursts of anger or worse that happened this week. And if it's true that you never have to sin again, then Lord Jesus, what is happening in my life? Because there's no one here in this room who hasn't sinned in the past week. And some of you, they, they insignificant sins that no one's going to jump on you about. But for many of you, you know, if someone knew, it would be pretty hectic. And here, the story of the Bible is telling you, you never have to sin again. Once you've come and accepted Jesus and you've received his life, you never, ever have to sin again because his life now is impressed upon your heart. Now his life is living itself out through you. So why do we sin? There's a story in the Old Testament. That goes like this. It's a story about two brothers who came to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. It's the first reported sin ever after Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. And the sin is murder. Cain and Abel are brothers. They present 
offerings to the Lord. And God accepts Abel's offering and he rejects Cain's offering. It's kind of like Cain handed in his self-embroidered, messed-up dog, and Abel handed in the one he got from Jesus. And God said, I can accept that, I can't accept that. What's so beautiful about the story is God doesn't reject Cain. It's almost like he takes Cain by the hand and tries to teach him how to be better in the future. That's what's beautiful about it. Cain rejects that and ends up killing his brother Abel. There's so much to the story, and you can go and read it, and you can hear a thousand more things from Jesus from the story. But I want to highlight this. At some stage, before Cain actually murdered his brother, God came and spoke to him. God could see it coming. And God came to him and tried to avert it, tried to change Cain's path. And it says there, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? From verse 6, Genesis 4. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This gives me a clue about the nature of sin. That sin, so to speak, is watching my emotions. The devil is watching your emotions. And when he sees an emotion he can use, he comes crouching at the door. And when you open the door to decide what your next move is, there is sin waiting to give you all the options that it would like you, that the options that would take you down into bondage. But what the story doesn't mention, but it implies, is that God is standing at the door also. Because he's there. He's telling Cain about what's happening. So clearly he's there also. So at the door, sin is crouching, and Jesus is standing. And you see, at that moment, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a matter of you just working hard at, harder at your tapestry. I don't believe it's because I, I worked really hard at that tapestry. It still didn't work. I, I don't think God's asking you to work harder at your tapestry or to run harder on your treadmill. I don't think that he's asking that. I think he's asking you to accept the trade. I think he's asking you, while you stand at the door, acknowledging. You see, God, God didn't like say you shouldn't be feeling these things. He said you are feeling these things. And he asks him why. He asks him to look behind his emotions to find what's really going on in his heart. You see, behind every sin, there is a moment where you choose to either follow your emotions or you choose to examine your emotions. And if you follow your emotions, sin has got you. But if at that moment you examine your emotions, 
and you find out what's really going on and you take the hand of Jesus and you allow his life to determine your next steps, you will not sin. You see, you never, yeah, yeah, that's worthy of applause, guys. Because the bottom line is, listen to me carefully, you never have to sin again. Because you see, the terrible thing about sin, the Bible tells us, is that it feels good for the moment. Heck, I bet you when Cain was plunging that dagger into Abel's heart, it felt good. But I bet you five minutes later, it felt terrible. Because at that moment, the guilt and the horror of what he did was racking his soul. The Bible tells us from then onwards, he was marked as a man who'd killed his brother. You see, that's what sin does. It comes in and it stains your soul and it makes, it tries to pull you into a kind of identity that molds you continuously in that vein. But now you're no longer Abel's brother, you're Abel's murderer. It's robbing you of your destiny. And the bondage it creates in your heart is overwhelming. Because every relationship you enter into from then on, there's this, not in the other person's heart, but in your heart, there's this underlying voice. This is who you are. Maybe they'll find out. Then they won't like you. Or at the same time, there's, a, there's an addiction that sets in that just continually drives you to more of that same behavior. Because that little bit of relief you've got, you're just craving it again and again and again. So in that moment, the devil has you, and he can turn you any way he wishes. You're back in Egypt. But you see, Jesus came out of Egypt. And all he's asking would you take the badly made tapestry of your life and would you give it to him and would you receive his grace? Would you receive his grace? Would you receive his grace? Jesus can set you free from anything. Like I said at the beginning, everyone knows you should not murder, but we all do it. And God wants to come and set us free. You see, his desire for your freedom is so much greater than your desire for your own freedom. Because we've bought the lie that this is all there is. You have not even begun to experience the levels of freedom that God wants for you. There is more joy in your future than you've ever thought possible. There's more life and blessing in your future than you've ever thought possible. But what it entails is examining your emotions and saying, why? And then asking Jesus, can I take your hand and can you walk me through? Can you set me free? Can you destroy this crouching sin that's waiting to grab hold of my leg like that misformed dog that I embroidered? Thank you, Father.
Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. So great people, that very short sermon on you shall not murder comes to an end here. But at this place, there is an invitation for each of you, you know, to leave some stuff behind. To acknowledge some of the, the embroidery assignments in your life. I don't look very good. And say, Jesus, I want yours instead. I want yours instead. We're going to embrace freedom with everything we have. There's some people here, and I know Jesus knows you've been battling with some addictions. There's some people here that you, you felt certain pulls back into ungodly behavior. When I say sin is crouching at the door, you felt that. You felt the pull. And your soul is, is leaning that way. And the good news is you don't have to go there. Look on the other side. Jesus is standing. Take his hand and walk into freedom. Because you see the magnificent thing that Jesus did on the cross is that while he hung there, he put his head on that crouching sin and he said, die in Jesus' name. Well, he, didn't, in Jesus, he was Jesus. He didn't say in Jesus' name. He just said, die. He literally has the victory you need. He literally has the victory that you need. You know, this week has been so convicting for me. Because honestly, I started examining my thoughts. And I was like, heck, Lord. I mean, the thoughts I think about taxi drivers, let me confess. You know those people in your past who did badly toward you? I mean, the conversations you have with them in your mind. You remember those? Or am I the only one? And you know what? I, some, some relationships I feel guilty about. I feel like I didn't do the best by that person. So you know what happens in my mind and my heart? Because I feel bad about it, I spend a lot of time justifying my actions. I think of all the reasons why it was their fault, not my fault. But if I, if I go behind the anger and frustration, I find the fact that actually I just feel guilty. I just feel bad that I messed up. And when I get to that place, I can turn and see Jesus and I can tell him what's really going on. Lord, I'm sorry I did that. Of course, they had their problems, but Lord, I contributed in this way. I'm so sorry. And you know what I see shining from his eyes? Nothing but love and acceptance. Nothing but love and acceptance. Because the glorious King creator of the universe 
loved you enough to step down into your pain and walk through it so you never would have to do it again. He faced your temptations and won on your behalf. So even when the devil comes crouching at your door, you are able to say, no, Jesus already won in this. He already has my victory in his hand and I'm going to take his hand and receive that. So I'm going to invite us to do something. I'm going to invite us to get serious about this. You never have to sin anymore. I mean, imagine how freeing that would be. Imagine how fantastic that would be. And, and if you do, you have an advocate who's already gone before the judge and won the case on your behalf. So you can just go back to him and say, sorry, darn, messed up. Let's, let's keep walking. But at this moment, I want us to be honest. I want to take Jesus seriously. I want to take the victory you won on, behalf, on our behalf seriously. And, and I want a commitment in my heart, and I'm asking for it in your hearts also. Lord God, I want to take your hand in such a way that I never have to sin again. And Lord, it seems quite impossible because I know the pull those things have on me, but yes, I'm saying yes to this giant promise that you are giving me. So I'm going to invite us all to stand. I did think of having us all come up one by one and stand on the stage and confess our sins to everyone, but I thought maybe that will take too long. So luckily, I'm not going to do that. I'm hearing some thank yous coming from the front few rows. There are also some people offering to come and do it, so I don't know. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to go before the Lord. Close your eyes, whatever helps you to engage with Jesus. And guys, I want you to bring your outburst of anger, your addictions, your breakdown of relationships, perhaps your substance abuse, perhaps your unfaithfulness in marriage, perhaps the harm you've caused another person. Whatever that is, you know it. Holy Spirit will be quick to highlight it to you. I want you to feel the emotions and I want you to say, Lord, why do I do these things? And I want you to let him show you what's behind. I'll guarantee you there's one of two things behind it. It's either fear or it's pride. Those are the two sources of every sin. You are protecting yourself from a perceived danger or you are exalting yourself away from a perceived humiliation.
And then I want you to be honest with Jesus. I want you to tell him, Lord, this is what I really feel, but I don't want to sin. I need you. I need you. I need you. And any way you you feel to do it, I like to do it physically. I just take his hand. And I want you to listen for his voice as you do. Because he's going to tell you some things. And those things are going to sound like this. I love you. I see you. You're not alone. You're important to me. Your life matters. I have a solution. Follow me. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I've got this. Something along those lines are going to come to you. And I want you to allow you to allow those truths to fill your heart. Fill me, Lord, with that truth. Fill me with that truth. Fill me with that truth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I want you to feel the life of His presence, the unconditional acceptance, the glorious grace that picks you up and puts you on His shoulder and says, Come, let's do it together. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand?